Hello everyone and welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner podcast. My name is Kevin England. This podcast will represent a break from our typical format as the subject of the podcast will be a talk given by Marianne Fraser. Marianne is a senior extension associate at the Department of Entomology at Penn State University and was speaking on this day, September 13, 2011, at the invitation of the Bucks County Beekeepers Association, the BCBA, on this night at Delaware Valley College in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Marianne is working closely with Dr. Chris Mullen and Dr. Jim Fraser, her husband, on the potential role of pesticides on declining honeybee health in general and CCD specifically. The topic of the symposium was Penn State research on pollinators and pesticides, along with a follow-up on how to protect honeybee colonies. I will get a few apologies out of the way before I turn you over to the audio recorded that night. I made my way to the event from work and ended up delayed, so I missed what I think was probably the first 10 minutes or so. The audio starts while the talk is in progress. I did make my way to the front of the room, but wasn't able to get my recording device to the podium. That being the case, the audio captured several nearby background noises, including cell phones ringing, typing, and I'm sorry to say, me shuffling through my bag during the course of taking notes through the evening. For what it's worth, it's still reasonably sound to listen to, and I did do some post-production to lessen or remove some of the very loud sounds, clicks, and interference. During the audio, there is an inserted beep about 30 minutes in. There was an interruption in the recording, and the signal lets you know that there's about a 20 to 30 second gap missing. I wanted to let you know that all these warnings sound bad, but it's not as bad as it seems. I'm just filling you in on a little housekeeping about what to expect. Lastly, before the presentation kicks off, I would like to extend a thank you to the BCBA and Marianne Fraser and the team for all that they do, and to Marianne specifically for taking the time to come out and meet with the beekeepers. It should be noted that an article on this topic, as part of Marianne's role in the Managed Pollinator Coordinated Agricultural Project, entitled Pesticides and CCD, was recently featured in the August issues of Bee Culture Magazine and the American Bee Journal. If you're not subscribed to either of those publications, that article is available on the web from the extension.org website, and we will provide a link in our show notes at www.bkcorner.org. Without any further delay, Marianne Fraser. idea what we were getting involved in. Um, we asked them a lot about the disease. We knew, my, my work in Sudan and my work in Uganda, I knew that there was very little brood disease in honeybees in, in Africa. And I have read some papers, there is not a lot of data, and there's not a lot of people looking at honeybees in, in, in Africa. Um, but uh, the data that did exist said that, you know, people who had done surveys, particularly for American problems, didn't find it, couldn't find American problems. So, you know, you start to think, well, maybe these bees have something that our bees don't have. I mean, we know that they have certain behaviors that our bees, certain physiologies that our bees don't have, like, you know, aggressive behavior and absconding and, and um, uh, migratory absconding and increased swarming. So maybe they have other things that, or maybe some of these behaviors contribute to their ability to resist things like diseases. So we were really interested in this kind of question, and we said to our Kenyan colleagues before we went, um, do you have a row of lights? No, 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 we don't have a row 
we got there, and uh, a couple of our graduate students got there before we did, and they, we started talking a little bit, and they said something about grow mites. And I said, well, we understood there were no mites. And the grow, graduate students said, oh, no, there are grow And the beekeepers were like aghast, like close college. No, 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 we don't have a row. And I'm like, gosh, this seems odd. You know, there's this very confounding response here. And so uh, we went into the beehive and we started looking, and it turns out they have a lot of bee louse, Varola sica. <coughs> you maybe some of the beekeepers in this room who have kept bees for a long time, more than 20 years, may know what the bee louse looks like. Um, we used to have bee louse and we used to see it a lot, um, but since we have Varroa and we've been treating for Varroa, we've pretty much wiped out the bee louse. It's pretty, it's a wingless fly. And it doesn't really do any damage to the bees, but it looks a lot like Varroa mite. When you look closely, it's an insect, so it only has six legs, and of course, mites have eight. But it's that brown color, and it's often on the back, you know, thorax of the bees, and so it looks a lot like that. So when the beekeepers were looking, the Kenyan beekeepers were looking, and the, even the beekeeping specialists were looking in their hives, they were seeing this Varroa sepia. But some of these looked an awful lot like Varroa mites. And so we started to uncap brood, drone brood. And sure enough, we found the mites in the drone brood. And there would never be a Varroa sica in drone brood. So it very quickly became apparent that there was Varroa mites in the Isippi apiary. So then the question was, is there Varroa mite in the other apiaries? Is it just confined to Isippi? Did something happen? This is an international research center for insect ecology and physiology. Maybe somebody accidentally brought Varroa mites into uh, you know, Nairobi, and here they are in, in the Isippi. But we quickly did a survey uh, around central Kenya. We traveled around Mount Kenya, and we, every apiary we looked at had, every colony we looked at had varroa mites. And after we left, our colleagues went to Uganda and Tanzania and <coughs> northern um, Kenya, and they found varroa everywhere except in the very <coughs> extreme northeast corner of Kenya. It's on the border with um, Somalia and in western Uganda they did not find it. So this is a population of mites that has been here, been in Kenya for a while, and yet nobody knew that they had mites. I mean, they weren't, they obviously weren't devastating the colonies like they do here. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. You know, we are, their bees don't overwinter. They do go through very severe dry uh, periods, you know, wet and dry seasons. But their bees have a really interesting mechanism to deal with that. They migrate to places where there's food. When the food dries up in the lowlands, they migrate to the highlands where they can find, find food. Whenever uh, it rains in the lowlands, the bees migrate back into the lowlands. So, you know, maybe they're leaving a lot of that varroa behind. You know, maybe there's a lot of potential reasons why these bees might be resistant. But the fact is we do have some beginning evidence to, to, that shows that maybe there's we don't see much in the way of diseases, even viruses, and we look very extensively. That's brand new data, literally. I mean, brand new information. We see only Nosema apis. We only see that on the coast. We don't see it in the interior. Uh, no Nosema serrani. So is it not there, or do the bees have ways of fending it off? All of these are really interesting questions. So in my mind, it makes great sense to look at this very old. This is the parent population of honeybees. Honeybees are not native to North America, not native to the Americas. They're imported. They're brought here from Europe. And, of course, some in the South America were brought from Africa. Temperate bees temp to, to a temp or, excuse me, tropical bees to a tropical environment. 
So the parent population, the oldest population of honeybees, the population that has had to deal with many, many, many things for thousands of years, diseases and parasites and predators, including humans, um, have been the bee population in Africa. So it makes really sense to, good sense to look at that population and understand it. And can we use the biology of those bees that do have mechanisms for resistance to help us understand and deal with varroa in a more biologically appropriate way as opposed to depending on that. So that's the story with, the, with the Ken, our relationship with Kenya and Kenyan beekeepers. In, a, in that process, we are trying very hard to help the Kenyan beekeepers not make the mistakes we have made. The mistake we have made, and I won't say it's necessarily a huge mistake. We did what we did for good reason, you know. We have a huge beekeeping industry here. We have a very serious agricultural industry that depends on honeybees. We can't afford to let 90% of the bees die and then develop resistance in a population after that happens. The Kenyan beekeepers is a little different. Nobody, there's no commercial beekeepers in Kenya. Everybody has a couple beehives, you know, or a couple people have a lot of beehives, but very few. Um, and so they can afford to let the, the and plus the bees aren't dying from the mites. They're not being as productive as they should be. Is that because of mites or drought or other reasons? We're trying to sort all that out. But, um, you know, we're really trying hard to work with them not to use chemicals to control the viral mite problem. And they are pretty convinced that that is a smart thing to do. I mean, they have to make their own decisions. We can only provide them with the evidence that we have and the mistakes that we've made in places where using not using pesticides like in South Africa has worked. Uh, and in seven years, they claim they have resistance to varroa mites in South Africa. So that's, um, that's the story in Kenya. The other thing that's really interesting about Kenya is uh, we collected samples of wax and pollen when we went to these 15 different apiaries around the country. And we brought that back, and there was incredibly uh, low amounts of pesticide in the wax which is not the case in this country. If you test your wax, and if you use foundation that you buy in, from the beekeeping supply companies, I can almost 99.9% .9 assure you that you're gonna have pesticides, particularly kumbabas and fluvalinate in your wax. It's there. Our wax supply is totally contaminated with pesticides, particularly kumbabas and fluvalinate. That stuff just really it stays in the wax. Half-life of kumbabas is five years. So it's a big, big problem. They have very, very clean wax, for the most part. We just found one beekeeper who had a big pesticide problem on the coast, and so we're trying to figure out what that, why that was so, what, what, where that came from. Um, but we had a really interesting um, workshop at the Eastern Agriculture Society meetings this spring, and I'm going to talk to you, Vince and I are going to talk to you about EAS at the end here. We're going to try to convince you all to be excited and interested and participate in the Eastern Agriculture Society Conference, which is going to be here in Eastern Pennsylvania in 2013. Um, but at that Eastern Agriculture Society Conference this year, uh, we got a bunch of beekeepers who are really interested in partnering with Kenyan beekeepers and beekeeping organizations. And the idea that we came up with was that we, one of the beekeepers at this meeting bought a solar wax melt. They throw their wax away. They don't even recognize it as a viable product. 
So they, they throw it away. So our beekeepers, a lot of them are really interested in getting their hands on that wax. So one of the guys stood up and said, okay, I'm gonna buy the first solar wax melter. I've already sent it over there. My colleague Mooley is figuring out how to get it made locally. They have very good carpenters. Any beekeeper or beekeeping organization, then we hope, can sponsor a solar wax melter that will go to a beekeeper or a beekeeping organization, and they will pay for that with their first five or 10 pounds of wax that they produce in a solar wax melter. That's the idea. You know, it's all in the infancy stage right now, but the, what I, I'm hoping will come from this is that everybody benefits, everybody wins. They win by getting, you know, to be able to use a, make a product that they haven't used before. We win because we get our hands on some clean wax. And that clean wax, you can make foundation from it or you can make it go a lot further by coating plastic foundation with clean wax, which is what we do when we're trying to do pesticide experiments and we want to start with no pesticides. So we've used wax from Africa, that's what we get, or we got it from Hawaii. But now, of course, what's happening in Hawaii? Varroa mites and hive beetles they have in Hawaii now. Big, big problem for those people in Hawaii. They're like where we were 20 years ago. So, yes. Yes, what you didn't like, we're gonna okay. after all that. So anyway, if you're interested in, in that potential, um, program, project. I have a listserv that I'm trying to get going uh, for people, organized clubs and, and, and individuals who are interested in that. I could add your name to the listserv and we're going to have a conversation about that and, and um, uh, hopefully that will go somewhere. I'm really, like I said, really excited about that. There's no donors involved. We don't have to need somebody to put in a big bunch of money. You know, this is beekeeper to beekeeper. Beekeepers helping each other out. So that's the strength of, of, of of that particular program. And in the meantime, we're hoping that we can also use what we know about African bees to help us deal with our mites and disease problems. Okay, so back to the issue around pesticides. Do, do, do you have a question, Oh, I'm sorry. I, does anybody have a question about that? About the bees in Africa, the project we have in Africa? You said that their bees aren't as productive as you thought they should be. So, yeah, so, so we, what we did is we, I went around with Mooley, the two of us, and um, I'm working on my Swahili, but uh, you know, I'm not there yet. And he and I interviewed, he's my direct colleague. Uh, he and I asked these beekeepers a series of questions about the history of their bees and their beekeeping and the amount of honey that they're producing. And well, of course we looked at the bees. And the bees are not, you know, most of, in places where uh, the forage is excellent, very, very good. The bees were doing pretty well, and they were producing honey. In places where forage is marginal, where bees typically had done well in the past, they really, the, the, what happens is they put their hives out, and the hives just get inhabited by bees. And typically that happens very quickly. But um, in the last three, four, five years, three, probably the last four, three to four years, that hasn't been happening. It takes much longer for the bees, to, the boxes, the hives to get inhabited. The swarms are smaller, and they're not producing much honey. And so there's a lot of questions about why that might be. Maybe it's, we thought maybe pesticides, so we tried to eliminate pesticides. Certainly could be varroa mites. They've had a number of droughts in East Africa over the last well, the couple of years. The question was, where are they in the drought? Yeah, cycle? I mean, right now, it's a huge, horrible drought there. And you can see the bees just hang on, like everything just hangs on for dear life until they get rain. It's very typical. But um, so how much, 
of an effect that there's no past information. You know, we're trying to develop a database and trying to understand uh, beekeeping and how productive colonies are. But Kenya has typically been a huge producer of honey. And uh, most of it, believe it or not, comes from these log hives as opposed to the, the Langstroth hives, which, you know, people have tried to introduce there for the last 50 years. But really, in reality, they're not that productive. And so part of it might be the way they're trying to keep bees and modern beekeeping equipment or the equipment that we use. Well, African bees really don't lend themselves that well to turn out to that kind of equipment. So we're just learning about that as well. So I think there's a lot of reasons why the bees might be uh, not so productive, not doing so well, but I think Barroa is probably contributing to that. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. What kind of hives do they have over there compared to ours? So the native hive, the, the hive that they've used for thousands of years, is basically a hollow tree. You know, a big limb of a tree or a big um, trunk of a tree, and those things cost them about 300 Kenyan shillings, and they will last for maybe 50 or 60 years. And they can basically make them themselves. They can get them like for 200 Kenyan shillings if they buy the chunk of wood and haul it out themselves. In other words, they're primitive hives compared to ours, and they're trying to. But there's been a lot of effort to introduce Kenyan top bar hives and Langstroth hives. And it is amazing because all these development agencies and efforts have been to give them this equipment and expect that they are going to get it and be able to keep bees in, you know, Langstroth or Canyon Top Bar Hives with absolutely no support. You think about the amount of support we have here in this country as bees. In other words, they're never going to produce until they learn how to get productive. Well, that's the question. Is the Langstroth Hive the right hive for this bee in Africa? Or is the log hive fine? Does it make sense for them to use this log hive and just harvest the honey from the log hive? You said they don't save their wax. Where do they get their foundation? They don't, they don't use, they don't have any, they don't need foundation. For Langstroth hives, they get a little strip or they put some wax on the bars, but that doesn't always work. So oftentimes the Langstroth hives are cross combed, so it doesn't work the way it's supposed to anyway. So that's, Langstroth hives are a big problem. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Question back there. I'll take one more. You probably know more about this. I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but it was my understanding that in Kenya they use the top bar hive method or they use the natural comb that the bees build out. And when you're comparing a natural comb to what a foundation is, the natural comb is a tiny bit right. smaller right. than what our typical foundation right. is. But some people have found this so when there are the natural tones, there's less issues with mites than what the foundations were because of that right. size differential. And yes, more honey is produced in the Langstroth with the um, foundation, right. but there's less honey in the natural comb, but more wax. Right. And maybe that's one of those reasons why their hives don't have as much of Totally, yeah, African bees are slightly smaller than European bees, and so their cell size is smaller, and so their development time is shorter. So less mites can reproduce in those cells for that reason.
So right there, there's one advantage that the African bees have, is their shorter development time. The other thing is, the reason why we have a problem with pesticides and diseases in our wax is because we use our wax over and over and over again. I, you know, in, with these Kenyan top bar hives or the log hives, they harvest the honey, and in order to do that, they take the combs out, they squeeze the combs, and they get rid of the wax. And the bees leave, and wax moths are a big issue over there, so the wax moths destroy the wax. So they start fresh every time. Every time those colonies are starting fresh. That sounds like a bad idea from the way we think about things because we think, oh, the bees have to make all that wax again. Well, in the long run, that may be a disease resistance mechanism, right? They're getting rid of all that wax. The, the diseases, the viruses, the foul brood, maybe that's why there's no foul brood, and the um, pesticides. So that native way of keeping bees may really be advantageous. But of course, we think, oh my gosh, you know, they have to have blank truck hives, and they have to you know, you know, reuse those combs. And well, maybe not. Maybe not. So we're, uh, th those are all questions and issues we're, we're working on. But thank you for that, that question. Thank you for that question. OK, so now to this issue of pesticides. We know that honeybees are declining, right? I mean, it's, it, it's documented. We have this strong evidence for that. There's two publications that really document the decline of honeybees. One is this National Academies of Sciences. came out in 2007. It's a book that basically says all pollinators in North America, or almost all pollinators in North America, are in decline. This is a European publication that looked at some bees that are specialized on certain plants, and they have the evidence say not only are pollinators in Europe, particularly in the Netherlands and in Great Britain, declining, but plants that those pollinators are associated with, these are specialized pollinators associated with families of plants, those plants are declining as well. Two very important pieces of evidence. It's not just honeybees, and it's not just the United States. This is our group here, up in the corner, that is working on this issue around pesticides. Excuse me. There's a lot of interest in honeybees and why they're declining, pollinators in general, why they're declining. A lot of people working on this, not just us by any means. And we're not the only ones working on the issue around pesticides. But we really took this on very quickly when this became an issue, our, our group. So I think we are probably further ahead than a lot of other groups in looking at. But this is a huge area, as you'll see, and lots of questions. So in this picture, um, the guy that is really critical, I'm sorry, I don't have a pointer. We were trying to figure out one of but I think one of these is Anyway, the guy, the tall guy in the middle there is Chris Mullen. He's a chemist. And we could never do this work without a chemist. It's very, very uh, critical to have a, a chemist. And he's one who's worked on pesticides and their metabolites for many years. The next guy in the back, the senior guy in the back, is my husband, Jim Frazier, who's an insect physiologist been very, very critical to the project. Juan Yizu, graduate student, myself, Tim um, Carlo, another graduate student, Sarah Ashcraft, who keeps the lab running, and um, two undergraduates there on the left-hand side. Uh, Lauren uh, just got a job in Hawaii and is working in Hawaii with the beekeepers trying to deal with mites and, and um, small hybrids. 
The other people who are really critical to us, and this is USDA lab, Roger Simon, USDA lab. So this is Roger Simons and, and Maria at, at the USDA lab in Gastonia, North Carolina. They have an unbelievable lab that can uh, evaluate products, pretty much any product, anything we give them to uh, look at pesticides. And we have a screen of 171 pesticides that we look uh, for. There's a lot more than 171 pesticides registered in this country. but. These 171 are the ones we think are most likely bees will come in contact with. And um, so they, they, we get our samples, we send them to them, and they do all the actual analytical <coughs> work. Uh, but Chris and, and Roger work very closely together. And Roger, lo and behold, is a beekeeper. <laughs> this was like unbelievably uh, serendipitous. He uh, is a very good beekeeper, and um, he goes after sourwood honey. Those were a lot of good hot spots are for sourwood honey in North Carolina. So uh, we like Roger for lots of reasons. <laughs> Diana Cox Foster, some of you know Diana. She's working with uh, issues around viruses, IAPV and other viruses that, that honeybees are dealing with. And then, of course, Jeff uh, Pettis and uh, Dennis Van Engelsdorp have been really important in the whole effort to look at the issues around CCD and, and decline in honeybees. And so we've done the pesticide analysis for a lot of the samples, a lot of the projects that they've been involved in. So when you think about honeybees and how they can become exposed to pesticides, you know, of course we take bees to crops like apples, and while they're in apples, they absolutely pick up pesticides, even though they're not being applied at the time the bees are in the orchard. Bees go to crops that we don't think about them going to, like corn. Whenever pesticides are registered on crops like corn, the pollinators aren't even considered because pollinators are not, you know, typically visiting corn, but they do. They absolutely do. Uh, we ourselves, again, have been putting pesticides in the beehive, and then there's the issue of water, and are bees picking up pesticides when they collect water. Uh, from 2007 to 2010, we have analyzed more than 1,000 samples pesticides. Uh, these have come from the, a CCD, the Colony Collapse Disorder Study, which basically involved colonies that had CCD, or operations that had CCD, and control operations. We have an apple orchard study. It's in its fourth year where we take these to apple orchards and we leave some colonies in a place that doesn't they have apple pollen but no pesticides are used. Um, a migratory study that Dennis and, and Jeff were involved in, three migratory beekeepers followed for a year and samples collected in high health <coughs> data taken. Uh, and beekeepers submitted samples to us through a cost-sharing program that I'll tell you a little bit more about. This is not the list of things we look for. This is the list of things we found. 121 out of our 171 pesticides in the past four years we have found. It's pretty amazing. Bees are, turns out, are really good at picking up things in their environment. They're, they're sentinel species when it comes to you know, picking up and uh, bringing back to the hive materials that are in their environment. So this list is frightening, yes, it's long, it's, you know, it's hard to believe, but there are lots of questions we have to ask. I mean, how many times do we actually find these pesticides? At what levels? How toxic are they? And so uh, there's a lot of issues 
and I'm gonna, we're going to address some of those in a minute. But this is what worries us about this uh, list, is that we have found as many as 39 pesticides in a single sample. And on average, there are more than six pesticides in every pollen sample. That means, you know, on average, if I go to one of your hives and I take the pollen sample, chances are I'm going to find at least six pesticides on average. I'm going to find six pesticides. Now, maybe in your hive I won't find six, but on average, we find six. Uh, 7%, only 7% of this number, 100, or 1,100 samples, had no test, no detections. Of the 100, I apologize, 129, not 121. And every pesticide class is represented here. The organophosphates, the pyrethroids, carbamates, neonicotinoids, chlorinated cyclopodines, organochlorines, growth regulators, fungicides, we find a lot of fungicides, herbicides, synergists and hormonines, um, uh, uh, which are, I'm not sure what hormonines are, to tell you the truth. <laughs> 51 of these are systemic. Do you know what a systemic pesticide are? What's a systemic pesticide? Well, it's a pesticide that if you apply to a plant, you travel around in the phloem or travel in the xylem, uh, it can be applied to the roots and then be moved up to the phloem. Exactly right. So then, then you could talk about systemicity inside the insect too. Right. So in the from the plant's perspective, it's actually kind of a cool technology. It's great for us because we don't put pesticides all over the environment. You know, when you see an aerial application of a pesticide or even a ground application of a pesticide, that pesticide is going lots of places other than on the target plant. But when you use a systemic pesticide, you put, as he said, a small nut on a seed, or you put it in the water, or put it in the ground as you're planting the seed, or put a small amount on the plant tissue, and it translocates throughout the tissues of the plant. The question is, nectar and pollen are part of the tissues of that plant. How much of this pesticide is getting into those tissues? Uh, so systemic pesticides are particularly uh, particular concern. So what I did was I made a table here and I picked out just a few examples of these pesticides to talk about, okay, to show you this is the data from our big database. This is just a subset of data. And uh, we, we, uh, these, all of these have been found in pollen, wax, and the bees. So carbaryl is a pesticide that a lot of us are familiar with, right? Seven dust. The active ingredient in seven is carbaryl. It's a carbamate. Pumafos we know, fluvalinate we know, imidacloprid is a, a pesticide that a lot of people have concerns about. It is one of these systemic pesticides, and the reason a lot of people have a concern about it is because of this, LD50. These are two metabolites or breakdown products of imidacloprid, and these are two pesticides that we find a lot. One is an insecticide, Clopyrifos, and the other is chlorthalonil, it's a fungicide. So the first thing that we look at is this LD50, <coughs> the lethal dose that it takes to kill 50% of the population. And this is sometimes expressed in different ways. This is parts per billion. You can also express it as micrograms per, say, 100 grams of beef. Okay? So we, we have all of our data that we look at in parts per billion, but there are other ways to express the LD50. So you can see here, carbaryl, it takes 10,000 parts per billion of whatever the bee is exposed to, to actually um, 
the toxic to kill 50% of the population. That we know is pretty toxic to honeybees. But so cubophos makes sense, 46,000 parts per billion. Uh, fluvalinate, interestingly enough, is only 1,500 parts per billion. But look at this imidacloprid, 280. That number is low, right? Does that mean it's more toxic or less toxic? More toxic. The smaller amount that it takes to kill 50% of the population, the more toxic the pesticide is. So low LV50s are bad because it takes only a small amount of the material to kill the population, to kill off the insect. So and here you can see the imidacloprid, 280 parts per billion, the two breakdown products. So even when this stuff starts to break down, the metabolites are as toxic as the parent compound. So you're not losing any toxicity when the material breaks down. Uh, so pyrifos is, again, an organophosphate. It's the insecticide that we find most often other than uh, cumophos and fluvalinate. And you can see here that um, it's pretty toxic to honeybees, whereas chlorthalonil, a fungicide, is over a million parts per billion, which you would expect. A fungicide isn't you know, necessarily active against an insect, whereas an insect, uh, insecticide is. The next thing we looked at is how often do we actually find these things? So carbamate, we find total detections of 44, uh, excuse me, carbaryl, in only 5.3% of the samples. That's not very much. Whereas cumophos, we have found out of 887 samples that we looked for cumophos in, we found it in 668. So that's 75% of the samples. Fluvalinate in 84% of the samples. If we're talking about wax, in both of these cases, it's just about 100%. 100% of the wax samples had cumophos and fluvalinate. Imidacloprid, um, lots of concern about these neonicotinoids, lots of concern about imidacloprid, clothianidin. Uh, but look how rarely we found them in the samples, only 14 samples, 1.7%. Now, we have to be careful here because there's a difference in polarity and where these things are likely to migrate into, what, what kind of material. Most insecticides are lipophilic, so they're going to dissolve into or, or end up in a fat, which wax and pollen are, are essentially wax, they're fats. Imidacloprid is much is, is, is going to much more likely dissolve in an aqueous solution. So really, if we're looking for these, we should be looking more in honey or in uh, water because we're more likely to find these particular products in, in, in that. And we have really have not looked at that many honey samples. The USDA has, however, and I'll show you that data in a minute. Clopyrifos uh, 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 and organophosphate, again, about half of the a little little less than half of the samples, and chlorthalonil, this is only one fungicide, and we see it in about 40% of the samples. One fungicide. If we looked at all the fungicides, you'd be surprised. I mean, it's amazing how much fungicide. Why is it not surprising that we see a lot of fungicide in our samples? Any ideas? Spraying roses and tulips and whatever else. Think about crops for a minute. A lot of these samples have come from bees that have been used for pollination. 
your bees are going to apples. Is the grower going to spray an insecticide if he wants his if he wants his crop pollinated while the bees are there? Yeah, probably not. I mean, they're 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 you know they're paying for those bees. They're not going to spray an insecticide. Well, he's going to do a fungicide. Why wouldn't he do a fungicide? Fungicide that's not toxic to honeybees, right? It's not toxic. So they do. They spray fungicide all the time when the bees are present in the orchard. So we see a lot of fungicide in the, in the hives. The next thing we look at is how much of the pesticide are we actually seeing. So here is the mean amount and the highest and lowest values. And what is important to notice here is that imidacloprid, even though we see it only a few, you know, a few times, uh, it is present here at a level higher than the LD50. So you would expect this to be a toxic situation, if, if whatever the sample was, and, and, and you know, depending on what the sample was and whether or not the bees were truly, I think these are mostly flower samples. A couple, we had a couple flower samples that had high levels of uh, imidacloprid in them. But if you see that in bees or in pollen or in wax in the hive, that would be a huge concern. So the levels at which we see these things are, are really important. Lastly, the reason I have these two things up here is because it turns out that fungicides can easily synergize with some classes of insecticides. And the two together can be much more toxic than either of them are alone or in combination, meaning the additive effect. They're much, so instead of them being A plus B equals C, A plus B equals X. It's a thousand times more toxic than the additive effect of the two. And this is very typical for chlorthalonil and chlorpyrifos, uh, organophosphate, pyrethroids, and neonicotinoids. We know that these fungicides can, uh, and there are certain classes of fungicides that are particularly prone to, uh, to, uh, or to, uh, to being more toxic. So this is an interaction, and um, this is what else are you taking? What other prescriptions are you on? So you're worried about interaction. Worried about the interactions of drugs. You know this happens. That drugs interact and can cause big problems. So what is the chance that in a honeybee hive, when you have an average of six pesticides in the food that is being fed to the larval honeybees, that you're not going to have some kind of interaction that affects the bees either at the lethal or sublethal level? <laughs> What's the chance of that? Pretty, it's pretty unlikely, right? That it's not going to happen. The LD50s that you have up there, is that for the adults or is that for, for the adults? This okay. is the adults. And this is a, uh, yeah, it's a hot, another, whole other ball game when we start, as you'll see, when we start talking about larvae. But this is for adults. And this is, Chris, uh, for most of our LD50s, he went through and he looked, most of it is a topical uh, application, not an oral application. Most of it's topical. Most of the data that uh, the EPA requires I believe is all is pretty much topical. They might also have some oral requirements, but there's nothing that looks at combinations of pesticides. There's nothing that looks at sublethal effects of pesticides, and there's nothing required to look at immature stages of bees whenever they're registering a pesticide or uh, applying warnings on those. Okay, so the 
outcomes of this, so the first question, of course, that we had to ask, oops, sorry, was, uh, you know, are pesticides even there to consider being an issue when it comes to CCD and de pollinator decline? And I think we have pretty much the evidence to say, yeah, it's an issue. It's an issue and it's a concern that we have to uh, face. So in fact, the commodity, if you, had, if you consider particularly pollen as a commodity or wax as a commodity, I mean, the pesticide database program has never seen a commodity that has as many pesticides as we have seen in pollen and wax. They're, I mean, and they were so appalled by this, the pesticide database program initiated a, an effort to add honey to the pesticide um, the commodities that they were analyzing for pesticides, that they were monitoring for pesticides. So the highest detections were, and the most frequently found pesticides were the in-house miticides, meaning the miticides that we're putting in, fluvalinate and cumulophos, but we see over a hundred other pesticides and metabolites from the environment. Um, pyrethroids dominate, and we know that pyrethroids and organophosphates now are kind of running neck and neck. But uh, we know that pyrethroids can interfere with foraging behavior. Uh, we don't see any one chemical that's likely to be responsible for CCD or even uh, you know, declining pollinator populations. Uh, uh, systemic and other fungicides, most fungicides are systemic, or excuse me, most herbicides are systemic, uh, occur at levels that may synergize with pyrethroids, organophosphates, and neonicotinoids. And um, we think a lot, one of the things we know about the CCD colonies is that they are very sick. They have a lot of disease. Why is that? Why do the CCD versus control colonies have so much disease? Is it possible that things are interfering with the immune system of the bees or of the colony's immune function and allowing diseases to take the bees out? And we think that's exactly what's happening. Uh, I'm using it too much, maybe. <laughs> um, the, it's, it's, we know that, for instance, varroa mites can interfere with the immune system of bees. We know that pesticides can do this. What else do we know can interfere with immune function in humans as well as in bees? What, what, what are you most likely to get sick? Stress. Stress and poor nutrition, right? If you have a poor diet, poor health, and you're stressed, that's when you get sick. You think our honeybees are under stress? Yeah, yeah, I mean, from the pesticide thing alone, mites, you know, lack of good nutrition, all of these things cause stress. Plus, there's an inadequate of poor nutrition for a number of reasons, including the potential that fungicides are in the bee bread and that presence of fungicide in Greek bee bread may very well keep pollen from being actually converted into bee bread. We know that the bees do things to bee bread. It's like, like bread that you're baking, you know? So it's alive, it's alive, there's yeast, there's a culture there that makes that bread bread, essentially. We think there's things that make bee bread, bee bread, make it particularly nutritious to honeybees. Maybe, you know, pollen is, has a very, um, heavy coat on it, and that coat has to be broken down in order for the bees to make use of it, it's nutrition. Maybe fungicides interfere with the action of um, those microbes that convert pollen to bee bread. 
maybe it also affects the bees' gut, and the bees can't make as use, good a use of, food as the, of their food as they can, as they should. There's a lot of questions here. There's a lot of questions. The bottom line is we really, uh, this is sort of where we are in our thinking, that the impacts of multiple pesticide residues, okay, working together, and particularly in bee food and in the hive itself, in the cells that the baby larvae are developing in, are, are the, the action is most likely due to um, uh, synergistic interactions of uh, pesticides working at the sublethal levels. So we know what a pesticide kill, a lethal pesticide kill looks like, right? What does a lethal pesticide kill look like? We can diagnose this. Piles of dead bees in front of the hive, some of them spinning on their backs, tongues extended, nectar regurgitated. That's a lethal effect of a pesticide. Who knows what a sublethal effect of a pesticide looks like? We don't, I mean, we can't diagnose it, right? We can't really, I mean, we have some ideas. Maybe high levels of disease presence have and the pesticides have caused the immune system of the colony to, to malfunction. Maybe bees are disoriented because it's affecting their neurological. Maybe larvae are not. Uh, we see this a lot. We see frames full of eggs, and we go back a week later, and you know half of those cells are empty, and only half have larvae in because the bees have eaten the eggs essentially, or the eggs have died. The young larvae have died. Why? We don't know. Is that a sublethal effect of a pesticide? Maybe. There's a lot of questions around this issue about sublethal effects. So hopefully a lot of you are thinking, oh my gosh, what about honey? Do I need to be concerned about my honey? I'm giving honey to all my friends. I'm eating honey myself. Is this an issue? Well, the USDA Pesticide Database Program added again honey as a commodity uh, in 2007 and 2008. They looked at uh, 744 samples. A lot of these were processed samples on grocery store shelves. Some were farmers markets as well. They do, you know, think that potentially the where honey is highly processed, maybe that's also affecting what we see in terms of pesticides. But this is what they found, and it's the first thing I hope you notice is this is a very very short list of pesticides. Coumadin fluvalinate were the things that were found most often, but they were found, you know. 35 to 35% and 11%, that's still, you know, pretty high number of detections, particularly for Kumafos. But the level is very low. Here's the maximum, um, see, the maximum level, minimum, the minimum level and the maximum level. So one part per billion versus 8.2 parts per billion. And that's below the EPA allowable tolerance, which is 100 parts per billion. So it's well below, because we have pesticides used in the hives, EPA has to set a tolerance. And the tolerance is 100 parts per billion. Anybody know what one part per billion looks like? What's one part per billion look like? How do you like a grain of salt in five gallons of water? Okay, okay, great. A grain of salt in five gallons of water. Another way of looking at it is if you took a roll of toilet paper from New York to London, one sheet of toilet paper in that roll that went from New York to London would be a part per billion. Um, it's a very, very, very small amount. So 
you know, unfortunately, we are living in a time of risk. Well, we always, but humans live in, 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 in terms of risk. You know, how much risk are we willing to take? And so the EPA sets this, this tolerance and says, okay, we need pesticides in the hive to control the row of mites. What risk are we going to accept in terms of, uh, it, you know, those pesticides contaminating our food? And this is what they say is acceptable. You know, we used to say whether that's accurate or not. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to argue that point, but we're well below the risk. And so you can see this is 24, um, 24, uh, whatever this is, 24-DFP is a metabolite of amitraz. And many of you may know amitraz is used by some beekeepers to control uh, varroa. We at one time did have a uh, registration for amitraz for the control of varroa mites. So there has been an EPA tolerance set for amitraz. That's why this is here. And that's, it's very, uh, not very toxic to mammals. And so that's why it's so high. But again, the levels are very, very low that we see here for amitraz. And the rest are basically, you know, very few pesticides at very, very low levels um, that have been, have been de detected. So uh, we feel really comfortable being able to say honey is a very safe, continues to be a very, very safe product. Sure. You were mentioning synergism. Uh-huh. Uh, toxic, it's not all toxic, mm -hmm. but it's used as a synergist. Yes. And it's that's specifically used to yes. increase the toxicity of other Yes, that's correct. Yes, yes, yes. And you were mentioning about synergism, so that would be the first place I put. So a word about that issue. So did you all hear the, what this gentleman said about cupronyl butoxide? It's a synergist, meaning that it's added purposefully to synergize, to make a pesticide more toxic. So some pesticides where, where the insects have become resistant, they've been able to get a longer life out of that pesticide. You sound like you know, you have some experience about this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they add this material to like reactivate, to make it more biologically active. It's a synergist. So they're, in this case, they're looking to make the, the product more toxic by adding this actual compound. What's interesting is that if you look at a pesticide label, they talk about active ingredients and inert ingredients, right? And usually the inactive ingredient is small, one, two, three, five percent. And the inactive ingredient is very large, right? So there are things like carriers, stickers, synergists, that are part of that inert, those inert ingredients. Interestingly enough, there's, it's all proprietary information. There's no, um, no pesticide registrant has to reveal what they add to their pesticides in terms of inert ingredients. There is no registration re requirements. They don't have to test these things for toxicity. There is no record keeping on how much of this inert ingredient is being put out into the environment. We have been, Chris and uh, a wonderful woman that we have a new uh, uh, postdoc in our lab, have been looking at the inert ingredients in <coughs> a lot of pesticides. 
and it turns out there are many inner ingredients, or at least classes of inner ingredients, that are very biologically active and toxic totally on their own, without even being present with the pesticide. And we can do, we do a lot of these cage studies where we put pesticides on bees, one pesticide, pesticides in combination, a synergist, the formulated material, the active ingredient, it's very hard to get most of the synergists or the inner ingredients, I should say, without their uh, active ingredient. But we try to look at these things as many ways as we can. And there is no doubt that a lot of these uh, things that are being added, particularly synergists, are toxic in and of themselves. And there's no regulation. There is no monitoring of this at all by EPA. It, it is a huge problem, a huge problem. You can find this information about uh, the pesticide, the data, this data at this website. It's not easy to find. If you want it, send, I can email this to you. So you can go to the, the EPA website, or excuse me, the USDA Pesticide Database Program uh, site here and find this information. So, uh, some of you say honey is, uh, when we think about honey, it's safe for human consumption. We feel really good about that. Um, Pesticide residues, however, in wax and pollen, we think are a big concern. And if you sell comb honey or if you sell pollen to the public, I would be very concerned. I would be, I would be very concerned. And so we we initiated this program to allow beekeepers to have their, their products tested or if they thought they had a pesticide incident, whether it was a lethal or sublethal <coughs> impact of pesticide, that they could uh, actually have their samples tested through us through this posture. So um, some key concerns we have are exposure, the kind, the amount, and the combinations of pesticides, systemic pesticides for the reasons I just mentioned, fungicides because they can synergize, adjuvants and synergists because they turn out to be biologically active on their own, uh, the breakdown products of these things which can be as toxic, in some cases more toxic, and there, the labeling on these things is totally inadequate for protecting quality. Herbicides, you know, we think, okay, well, at least herbicides are an issue. Now, the number of people that are applying herbicides to their lawns to get rid of dandelions and clover or skunks, can you believe it? People are applying herbicides to get rid of skunks. It turns out, you know, skunks are digging in the lawn for grubs. People don't like that. They don't like, the, you know, skunks on their yard digging for grubs. And so they use herbicides to get rid of the grubs. Excuse me. In that case, it would be an insecticide. Insecticide to get rid of the grubs. An insecticide. But herbicides certainly to get rid of the, the dandelions and the, and the um, clover. So what does that mean for us? Reduced forage, right? Reduced forage. They're getting rid of things that our bees use. What? In order to have a good diet, what bees need is diverse source of pollen. Lots of different kinds of pollen. Honey bees are diverse <coughs> pollen feeders. Polylectic. They need lots of different kinds of pollen to be successful. And we're eliminating forage for bees all the time, especially through the use of herbicides. <coughs> so <it's coughs> insecticides, again, can be lethal <coughs> by having a toxic effect. Um, and that, how it works depends on the mode of action of that pesticide. Uh, again, this idea of uh, multiple pesticides is an issue that Sarah's working on. Behavioral effects on learning and retention, 
uh, on foraging behavior, physiological effects on the immune system. We have already a fair amount of evidence showing that pesticides can shorten the lives of bees. And then this whole issue around larval development. We have a wonderful graduate student, Juan Yizu, who's working on this. And it is a very interesting how some pesticides cannot be toxic to adult bees, but can be totally toxic to immatures, immature larvae. And vice versa. It's, it's very interesting and very, a uh, little bit troubling. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to skip through that. Here's Sarah. This is the kind of uh, bioassay she's been doing for the past three years. She's certainly gone way over, um, oh, I had a number here. But basically, we've learned, too, that that, um, that these bioassays, typically that the USDA or that the EPA requires, which is a two-day bioassay, if you take that after four or five days, you can often see an effect of the pesticide that you don't see in two days. So. We're working with EPA to try to change some of these um, lab, semi-field, and field studies that are required by the registrants to get pesticides. But it is not an easy task, I can tell you that, trying to get EPA to change the way they register pesticides. Christy, uh, yeah. how does the oral LD50 compare to the topical LD50? Uh, you know, I don't have that data in front of me, but an oral LD50 can actually, you mean for pesticide for pesticide? Yeah, or the same pesticide applies in different ways. Because yeah. in uh, food uh, in that they eat It totally the depends on the mode of action of the pesticide. And you know, how well it penetrates the cuticle. Some of the pesticides, if you put it on oral or uh, topically, they don't have good, good uh, penetration of the cuticle unless a penetrant is added to the pesticide. So sometimes we look at the active ingredient, sometimes we look at the formulation, and you might see a total difference on a topical application if it's in the formulated versus the active ingredient by itself because of things like penetrance. Um, I mean, I would have to, we have so much data on this stuff. I, I mean, I couldn't tell you, it would totally depend pesticide to pesticide whether it was more toxic as a, as a uh, topical versus a coral. I think EPA does require that the registrants do both topical and oral 48-hour feeding or exposure, one-time exposure, and then watching the bees for 48 hours for a topical application for um, only for informing the label. If a pesticide is horribly toxic to honeybees, it doesn't mean they're not going to register. It just means that they're going to put a warning on the label. So I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, I mean, yeah. It's, that's kind of a complicated kind of <clears throat> This is what a synergist look, synergistic effect looks like. So here are two pesticides, a sale, a neonicotinoid, and nova at two three different concentrations. This is after this is just a 24-hour uh, test. So this is them alone, and then this is them combined, but in combination they're present at the same amount. And what we see is for the 24-hour period, neither the assail or the NOAA by itself, it's down there on the bottom axis, showing that there's no toxicity, there's no mortality. Whereas when we put these two things together, you can see we reach the LD50 by the, at the second dose here. Pretty, pretty <coughs> easily, we, we can see a huge increase in toxicity. That's what a synergistic effect looks like. By themselves, they're not a problem. Put them together, and again, at the same amount, we see the, a toxic effect. So I just want to quickly go through a couple of these 
This is now, again, four days. You can see, this is what we learned. We were doing a lot of these studies for, for 48 hours, and we wouldn't see any effect of, of things in two days. But if you take that up to four days, you will see. Now, this is the solvent. This is actually a solvent control. So we see less than 10% mortality in four days, which is what we would hope. You have to dissolve these pesticides in a solvent. So we want to make sure that the solvent itself isn't an issue for the bees. Then we look at, we add here, cumafos and fluvalinate. And you can see that uh, the solvent, again in blue, here in blue, cumafos in yellow. This is what we sort of expect. Again, at two days, we wouldn't see any effect. But taking it out to four days, we can see that the that basically cumafos is really not um, uh, any more toxic, essentially, than the solvent control. But right away, we see that the fluvalinate has a, a much, which is so funny, because for years, we thought that fluvalinate was so much more safer, so much safer for the bees than was cumafos. But you can see here that this is very typical of what, what the kind of thing that we see is that cumafos does, and we know that cumafos has a lower LD50 than, am I saying that right? A higher LD50 than, than uh, fluvalinate. Uh, here's what happens when we look at clopyrifos. <coughs> and now what we're doing here is we're, look, we're looking at, we're adding these two things together. So right away when we add cumafos and fluvalinate, we see uh, up to 30% mortality when, the, when they're added together. Again, it's sort of synergistic effect. And there's been some really nice work done on this to look at the cytochrome P450 enzyme system. So we recognize that when these two things are present together, they overwhelm the honeybee's detoxification system. So this, this, this data makes sense in light of that. Here's what happens whenever we look at fluvalinate and chlorthalonil. So chlorthalonil, again, is a fungicide. So I'm telling you that we have fluvalinate in our wax, in our, in a, and it transfers easily into pollen, because they're both, when the bees put pollen in those cells, we see a lot of migration. If there's a lot of uh, fluvalinate there, it migrates easily into the pollen. So we have this background of fluvalinate. We take the bees to a, a crop, and the bee, the growers are spraying fungicide. So here's what we have in the hive a lot. We have we see our mitocides in combination with things like fungicides. So we can see how, what kind of increased mortality we might expect. Here's what happens whenever we look at um, cumafos and pyrifos. <coughs> but look what happens when we add in this cage studies, when we add all of these together, we put these on the bees. We get a reduced, this is the line for cumafos, fluvalinate, clopyrifos, and chlorvalinol. We get reduced mortality. This is called an antagonistic effect, where somehow these things are biologically canceling each other out. This is why this whole issue around pesticides is so difficult to understand. Uh, I'm just going to quickly go through these slides. We do have evidence with Diana Cox-Foster that pesticides uh, interfere with the immune function of the bees. When we feed the bees pesticide and we have control bees and we challenge them with a virus, those bees that have been given the pesticide are more susceptible to the virus or have higher virus titers. And that's what these slides are basically saying. So here, again, basically summarizing you know, what's going into the hive, herbicides, insecticides of every class, fungicides, things that we're putting in the hive that are going to be there, and they're in the wax, and they're, they're, they're there, whether we put them in or not. Um, 
we worry about the interactions between pesticides, we worry about sublethal effects, we worry about adjuvants and synergists that aren't even on people's radars, uh, interactions with other stressors, and these are sort of the measurements that we're really interested in, in taking. So what about protecting the bees? What can we do? What can we do for our bees? Um, we need to monitor and control the row mites to keep that from being a stress on the bees. Um, but what we don't want to do is use things like kumafosin fluvalinate hard chemicals. And now there are a number of soft chemicals that are available out there uh, that we can use. Uh, new formic acid product, Apigard, Apolite bar, <coughs> uh, Hawk bar. There's a number of different materials that we can use. Uh, we really encourage people not to keep their comb for 50 years, you know, not to keep your comb for 10 years. To recycle because you're getting rid of the pathogen as well as the pesticide buildup in those combs. Um, this is especially true, you know, in dead out colonies. We've had, like, you know, we can already see right now some of our colonies have high loads of what we think is virus in this snotty or melted brood in the brood nest. And uh, we get rid of those cones. We just get rid of the bees and get rid of those cones because we don't. We see a high level of that kind of thing in a, in a hive. We just get rid of it. Um, based on widespread resistance, things like kumafos and fluvalinate aren't even effective anymore. So it's really not very helpful to use them. And we never want to use an off-label product. There are lots of these kinds of things in other materials those active ingredients and other materials, but we don't want to be using products that are not labeled for honeybees. Um, we really encourage those who are using bees for pollination to communicate with the growers and, and you know, try to get the growers to reduce their use of fungicides in the presence of, of, of uh, honeybees and never, never apply insecticides or pesticides to blooming plants. There are lots of labels out there that say you can, this, this pesticide is toxic to honeybees, but you can apply it to blooming plants if the bees are not present. It doesn't work, I can tell you. From an experience we had on the Penn State campus, it doesn't work. The next morning the bees are out there on the plants and the bees are dead because they come in contact with the pesticide. Um, uh, dose makes the poison so it can dilute the effects of the pesticide. This is really good. And this is some of the commercial beekeepers are allowing the bees to recover. They, after uh, taking the bees to a crop, they sometimes will move the bees onto a honey crop or to a meadow or an area where they're not being faced with a lot of pesticides so they can recover. They continuously feed a protein supplement to dilute the effects of, of contaminated pollen. Um, growers are now actually being encouraged to plant pollinator conservation strips where there's alternative, you know, it used to be we would say, get rid of all the dandelions, mow the dandelions in the orchard, you know, get rid of any competing blooms so the bees are on the crop. Now we're saying, oh, let's see if we can get the bees off the crop so that they're not faced with pesticides constantly. So can we give bees alternative forage while they're on a crop that might dilute the effects of a, of a pesticide? Uh, Encouraging homeowners to reduce their use of pesticides and plant for pollinators. Master gardeners in this state are doing a great job of certifying gardens pollinator friendly. And um, there's a whole program by our master gardeners to do that. And 
that's been great. It's been great. Uh, incident reporting. What's happening is that the EPA looks at their incident database and they see, oh, in the past 10 years, there's only been 100 reports of bee kills. That's nothing. That's not, that, there's no problem here. What happens is growers and beekeepers, you know, they have kind of an uneasy alliance. So our beekeepers will take their bees to pollination. Something happens, there's a bee kill, a lethal bee kill, and they, you know, they don't want to, they have a good, they have a relationship with their grower. They don't want to destroy that, so they don't want to make a fuss over it. So they take the loss or the grower pays the beekeeper and it's forgotten. But that data is never captured. So EPA says, there's no problem. Or I talk to a guy, he's, you know, beating in North Carolina, he comes up to me, he shows me, you know, pictures. Piles of dead bees in front of his beehive. You know, backyard beekeeper. Yeah, you know, my neighbor was spraying, you know, putting seven on his squash. And my bees were going over there to the squash. I'm sure that's what it was. Did you file an incident? No. I went over and talked to the guy. He said he's not going to not put pesticide on his squash. And I said, well, look at my bees. But the guy's not going to report it. So there's no incident. There's no issue. There's no data. So this is a this is a huge problem. And I don't know how we're going to get around this problem. <coughs> mm -hmm. Who do we report this to? Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, right here. There's a wonderful website. It's the Ecological Pesticide Incident Reporting. This is a new portal, and they're trying to capture this information. And so you, um, what we really are encouraging people to do is, even if you think you've had a pesticide incident, is to report it to this site. And um, what they ask you to do is to call them first. Call them and then they give you some kind of a um, password to be able to get into this pesticide database reporting program. And all this information goes to EPA. This is also, this is, like I've gone to a website here, but this website, this um, uh, ecological pesticide site, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it is a great resource. It has a lot of information about <coughs> pesticides, their toxicity to mammals, to invertebrates, to aquatic insects, to bees, uh, labels of pesticides. Um, you know what happens if you if there's a toxic event to a human. Um, this is a great resource. This website. I'm just showing you the page that takes you to the incident um, reporting. The data, the, the um, incident report page, but this is a great resource. Um, we also have this pesticide cost sharing program <coughs> where beekeepers can get a, a, a sample analyzed, which is very helpful in if you're supplying, if you're doing a, a pesticide re incident report. Um, there are some issues with this, <laughs> which I won't go into right now, but we're trying to sort this out. Unfortunately, the money that I had to pay $30,000 for this is gone. We have used it all. Uh, we're trying to get another uh, influx of money. And the idea is that we pay half the cost of a pesticide sample and you pay half the cost. And it's still $142. <coughs> Even more each pay half. This is what you would get from the EPA, two pages that list the pesticides that are screened for. And, um, that LOD is the level of detection. So that's the least amount that they can actually detect. Um, 
are to be called off called the load. So it's the, the least amount that they can. So that's like six parts per billion for uh, uh, here on. There's two pages of this, and it tells you the amount as well as the pesticide. We also give you this, which is a your sample, and it gives you the the amount in the. So I, we now have a big database with over a thousand samples in it, and we have a lot of information. And so this gives you the average amount in the database and the range compared to your sample that we that you have uh, had analyzed. So these are two beekeepers pollen samples, and that's the information that we would get. These are the um, uh, different funding <coughs> sources that have contributed to this work, and we are extremely grateful that they've been. This is a very expensive work, very, very expensive work. And um, these people have been very, we couldn't have done this without these funding units. And this is our website, the Center for Pollinator Research in Penn State, uh, and the Mid-Atlantic Agriculture Research and Extension Consortium, the mayor, the regional website that you can go to and we try to put information on these sites for public. So I just wanted to mention quickly, I know it's, it's been a, talked a long time and I'm happy to answer questions. There's one other thing I want to just tell you about that we're trying to do. There is a lot of concern about homeowner use of pesticides. And what we're trying to do is get uh, four or five different urban centers. The beautiful thing about beekeepers is they're all over the place, you know, even in urban areas. And so we have concentrations of beekeepers, for instance, in Pittsburgh. We have in the city. We have concentrations of beekeepers in New York City on rooftops, and in Marin County, California, and in other very highly urban areas in Connecticut, uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. And so some of the groups, the clubs, have agreed to participate with us to uh, use the bees as sentinel species to monitor pesticides in urban environments. So we have several groups that have come up with uh, funding <coughs> We're again going to cost share this, and we're going to use the bees, and we're going to map out the area that the bees are foraging, and have a geographic uh, profile of that community, and then we're going to use the bees to pick up the pollen, and we're going to analyze those samples, and we're going to be able to say, okay, in this community, you think people in Marin County, California, think you know you're not use, you know, the, the, the issue with pesticides resides in agriculture. And in fact, it doesn't. It resides a lot with homeowners. Homeowners are using a lot of pesticides. And we're hoping that we can show them that through the use of the, of, of the bees in their community, not even in their community. So we have two communities that are on board already, the bird bees and the Pittsburgh have the money to put toward this program in Marin County, California. And um, so this fall, we're going to actually do our first uh, pilot of that program to see if we can monitor pesticides in urban environments using homes. That's kind of an interesting project. So I'm going to stop there, and uh, I'd be happy to answer questions if you have them. I'm sorry I talked. Aside from uh, beekeepers putting in cumulobosin from Valmy, how, how does the pesticide get into the wax? Is it through the pollen, or is it how it continues to accumulate, I guess? Yeah. Is it through the honey? Is it, I mean, the bees have to actually, they make the wax. Right. 
That's right. So it has to and go so, through the weed through the nectar? Well, what we, what we think is happening, so certainly, like you say, when you put those strips in, we think that there's a lot of migration of that chemical into the, into the wax. When the bees go out onto a crop, and they go crawl over that flower, and they're picking up the pollen, you know, basically they're diving into that flower, and that pollen's getting all over their bodies, and then they're scraping that pollen up, and they're putting it into their pollen baskets and bringing it back. And they're also sucking up nectar. We think that, for the most part, in coming in contact with that flower that has pesticide on it, and in picking up that pollen, that's how they're transporting that pesticide back to the hive. Once they put it in those in the wax cell, yeah, it can migrate easily between the cell, the wax in the in the cell, and the pollen. We see cumulophos migrating into the into the wax, into the pollen from the wax, and vice versa. We have also seen in pollen traps, so we have pollen traps on the hives. The bees go out, they collect pollen, and they come back. We can find cumulophos and fluvalinate in the pollen that never got into the hive. So the bees themselves, their cuticles, have, we think, have that pesticide on them. Uh, one step further, we put osmia in these orchards where we're doing this this work. So these are solitary bees that we knew wouldn't fly so far and we take their little pollen balls and we analyze them for pesticides. We can find cumulophos and fluvalinate in their pollen. The only way that can happen is at the flower. And the bees are actually depositing this pesticide on the flower when they're there and the next bee comes along and osmia. So it, it's incredible how mobile pesticides are in the environment. It's really interesting. Thank you. The systemic pesticides, how are they getting into the hives if they're systemic? Well, we think that they are... Are they, 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 are they misapplied? No, no, not necessarily. <coughs> we have seen, we have in our case with apple orchards, you know, there have been you know, we brought the bees in and the grower put the pesticide on once the bees were there, which was a mistake. They weren't supposed to do that, you know, and it happens. It happens. So in that case, the bees can be directly exposed. They're out there foraging. You know, we even tried to close the hives up. But the next day, you know, we let the bees out and they're, or the bees are collecting, if their if the nectar and pollen is contaminated through the systemic action of the pesticide, they're collecting that, taking it back to the hive, and it's in the nectar and pollen. Okay, but systemics have to be applied if they're applied properly at a specific time of the year, not necessarily when bees are active, if they are used properly. Okay, you wouldn't say something around? Yeah, uh, a systemic pesticide just means it moves around inside the plant. Right. If you put a systemic pesticide on a leaf, say for instance you make a radioactive pesticide and put it on a leaf, <coughs> allow it uh, to equilibrate and take a body radiograph, you'll often see that most of the radioactivity is on the periphery of the leaf. So at, all, at, at one time or another, all the pesticide was in solution moving about the plant. But over time, they often tend to migrate to the periphery of the plants. So if you think about uh, a blossom, it's, it's logical that, yes, at any given time, there may be very little in solution in the phloem of the xylem. But over time, it could easily travel to the periphery of the plant and build up at the ends of those uh, vessels, so it could accumulate in, in the flowers. 
I don't know, because I don't know in physiology. I think that's that's very yeah. obviously, you know, from what we know about systemic pesticides, is that, that, that is what they do. And and you're saying that plants that are uh, evergreen or non deciduous, if they're going to blossom? Well they, they go to the periphery of the plant. Just the edges of the no. leaves. The edge of the, they go to the end of that uh, I think it was a vein or an artery goes to the end of it, and then uh, the solutions are always are traveling in one direction, so it goes on that brine, and then it sort of gets deposited at the end. Scott has a... Or even more simply, those systemic pesticides spray on the outside of the plant. They're there for a while, and they don't all go into the plant. So what Marianne is saying is through just through normal foraging contact, they're just picking it up on the outside of the plant. The other thing I'll tell you, and that's absolutely true, I mean, that it used to be that, I mean, our understanding was the whole reason why systemic pesticides, even though they're so toxic to pollinators, got approved originally, got registered, was because they were put on seed. It was approved for seed treatment. This is particularly true for the neonicotinoids, which are highly toxic to honeybees. I thought, okay, they're getting put on the seed in the ground. Chances are, at least in that way, the pollinators weren't going to come in contact with them. But now, they're spraying neonicotinoids on trees all the time. I mean, and we're like, what, how did this happen? And there's no, you know, you follow sort of EPA's registration of things, and there's no sort of justification for this, knowing that these things are so toxic to pollinators, and they're just spraying them in the environment. And you know that the bees are going to come in contact with them. We did a little study in Biglerville. There was a row, there was a row of um, crabapple trees that aren't treated for pesticides. Biglerville is the Penn State research station for apples. We took several of those apple trees and we applied the Bayer Advanced product of aminoclopric, which is approved for homeowner use, which can be used, by the way, much higher, at much higher levels than our grower can use in an orchard. We drenched the trees. We drenched the tree around the tree. We did, we did this with a bunch of trees, and then we had a couple control trees. And we took samples, so we drenched them. I forget exactly the timing, but you know, it was like three weeks before we moved. So bloom comes around, we take samples, we saw nothing in those pollen and nectar samples. We actually took the flower apart and we took the nectars, we got three grams of nectars, and three nectaries and three grams of, of pollen uh, of anthers. The next year, we thought, oh, it's a fluke. Well, let's just take some samples of each tree and see what we find. There was almost a part per million of the imidacloprid in the nectaries and in the pollen. The third year, the level was about the same. This is three years, we never applied it again. We never applied it again. Three years later, it wasn't until the fourth year that we did not, weren't able to detect the pesticide in the plant. So that's another issue. What happens in these crops where they apply it year after year after year after year? It's a, it's, it's a big, big problem. And you know, as extension, speak for Scott and I, you know, the extension is being dismantled, essentially, you know. There's no other voice, sorry, to deal with these issues of pesticides. We are really in trouble. I'm going to tell you, we are serious. I'm sorry to so emotional about this, but it's reality. There's the, pe the pesticide companies are totally educating the growers, and they're dealing with the growers, and they're telling the growers, you know, to use this. They are now using fungicides on corn simply to increase the, um, how do they put it, 
when designed are not to fight fungus, not to deal with, with, with diseases on corn, but because it makes the corn grow better. This is what the pesticide companies are telling the growers in the Midwest. There are tons and tons and literally tons of fungicides being applied simply because it, it uh, is a, a, like a growth um, stimulant for corn. This is what the this is what the pesticide companies are. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And really, the, the checks and balances are no longer in place. Yeah, um, I have um, a situation where I have about 75 colonies of bees that I'm taking care of. I have about 30 so of those in the city of Philadelphia. And then I have the balance of them are in the Oli Valley, which is a very intense region for conventional corn and soy production. Mm -hmm. And um, as an observation that I had of last year, I had 90% of my hives in the corn and soy regions over the winter were lost. And in the city of Philadelphia, I was exactly opposite of that. I had 90% successfully overwintered. Um, to me, that is just screaming very strongly. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the beekeepers are, are very much in agreement, the large commercial beekeepers are very convinced, and this is why there's all this issue, this concern about the about the neonicotinoids because they're being used so heavily on corn and soybeans now, and so the beekeepers are making that connection whenever their bees are in in um, contact with corn and particularly soybeans, but particularly corn, they see these issues with the bees falling apart, and they they keep making. Our problem is we have not been able to scientifically document. We have not been able to prove that issue. You know, there's a, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to support the fact that, yeah, there's something going on. It was very an interesting comment by a beekeeper just to call me up in the Midwest this week and said, you know, there's a lot of flooding. These seed treatments on corn and um, on soybeans in areas where there was a lot of flooding and the bees were had access to the water. We all said to the he and I are like putting this together. Is it possible <laughs> that that seed treatment leached out into that water and the bees are collecting that water and that is where the neonicotinoids and we're not looking at water and we're not looking even at nectar. So are we missing this? It's possible. It's possible. Mm -hmm. oh, you mentioned uh, soybeans and corn. Most of the corn and most of the soybeans is rounded already. Uh, so they treat the corn, or treat the soybeans with lots of Roundup to kill off the extraneous weeds. Uh, but Roundup is regarded as relatively non-toxic. That's right. Uh, it, have you delved into that anymore? Yeah, because it's also corn and, I mean, I don't know about the Roundup, but, but it's also mostly GMO. Almost all corn is genetically modified, different real <coughs> corn. And it's almost all treated with GMO. Most corn within this today is seed treated with a neonicotinoid. Yes, I know for the, for the wireworms and such, but they're also treated with lots of Roundup in the weeds. Right. You know, this is the story I tell with Roundup every time anybody asks me about Roundup. And I don't, this is just one story, but it's it's interesting to me. We have a beekeeper who is a colleague of ours who helps us a lot. He puts in a lot of package bees every year, himself and other people. He has two sprayers. 
one has Roundup in it and the other one has sugar syrup that he uses on his bees when he puts packages in. He got those two things mixed up. He didn't do that many hives of bees, but he did enough of them, a couple of them. And he just, I mean, he sprays these things down. And every week I was asking him, Craig, how are those bees? And he sprayed them around. <laughs> you know, tell me that those bees with Roundup are, you know, dead is what I would expect. But they were fine. They were fine. So there's an example where he sprayed the stuff right on the bees. They had to be eating it. And they survived. So I don't know about Roundup. I don't know. I mean, that's one case. I don't, you know. I think it's more of an issue that so much herbicide is getting rid of the forage that the bees are dependent on. Should we as consumers push more for organic produce and not look for the perfect, perfect fruit without any? I mean, if you ask me that personally, absolutely. I think we are, as a society, uh, possessed with the idea that we have to have the perfect apple, the perfect ear of corn with no uh, worm. You know, what did they do five years ago when there were worms in corn or ten years ago? You cut the baby worm out. You know, people now are people I know who are smart are looking for corn with worms. In it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is you know. At least I know that you know there wasn't a ton of pesticides used on this corn. And I, mean, I would say yes. And backyard, backyard gardeners yes. who yes. plant organically and don't spray yes. get the imperfection. I think we need to. It's a huge educational effort. It's a huge educational effort. It's a huge. When I was working with teachers, you know, I had a, had a, I've done a lot of talk with with teachers and with high school students, and I take it two years with one, one with the worm, one with that, and I ask them, okay, which one of these? If you're picking these at a grocery store, which one do you going to pick? Every single one of them will say the perfect ear of corn. What message are you saying? I said, what do you think is different with these ears of corn? Oh, well, this one probably got, or I take apples, which I know my apples have no pesticides, they're totally organic, lots of issues. Yeah. And then you know, the uh, you know, perfect apple. You know, what's the difference between these? They, they get, they get, yeah, there was probably a lot of pesticide on that one, yeah, there wasn't. So what message are you sending to a grower when every time you go to the grocery store, you pick the perfect apple, and you ignore these? What, I mean, what are you telling them? Are you saying, I want pesticides on my food? That's what you're telling them. I mean, we don't think about it that way. You know, we don't think about it that way. But we need to. I wanted to share that um, one great opportunity is the Rodale Institute is going to be um, working on a program to help people who don't have a backyard or don't have a proper place to keep a hive that has great access to forage. And beginning in November and January, we're going to work together on creating a program where people can keep their hives, they can learn how to build hives there, and That's keep it great. on their That's property great. where it will be organic forage, mm -hmm. it will be planted for forage. And anyone who has the hives there, there can be different types of hives. Um, there will be studies done on behavior of the bees, et cetera, that's great. the Rodale Institute will be doing. So I'll certainly keep you posted on any information that comes out of that. That's great. That's really, I think that's a neat idea. I was just in Pittsburgh. They have a new, uh, the Bird, Bird Bee Beekeeping Association, and they have a community apiary. They took up a lot, an abandoned lot that was, you know, a year ago there were drug deals going on. I mean, this is in a pretty poor area of the city. They turned it into a beautiful garden, and they have a fenced apiary. And anybody who wants to in the association can have a beehive in that apiary. And 
they have about you know 25, and everyone's different, you know, everyone's painted different. Some have the skylight of Pittsburgh on it, have, you know, all kinds of cool things. So I think that community apiary is a great idea for people who you know are concerned about having bees in their backyard for whatever reason. A community apiary, a place where the where it's going to be you know safe for the bees is rare. So and certainly yeah, the educational programs and the opportunity to partner with somebody else to share. That's super. That's great. And you know, um, yeah, we should uh, just say a few words about the Eastern Apiculture Society and maybe Rodell is some place that we might try to. We need. We hadn't thought about tours or anything like that, but maybe Rodell and I don't know how far Rodell is from from Westchester. Not very far. So, uh, oh, Sydney Ma. So Vince is a uh, is is uh, Aloyo is the president of the Eastern Apiculture Society in 2013. He's the president to be right now, and um, he is going to need a lot of support and help from all of us in order to put together a dynamic program for EAS Eastern Apiculture Society in 2013. So we're just working on that. It's going to be at Westchester University, a great facility, beautiful campus, and terrific meeting rooms. And we want to have a really outstanding program and short course. And um, Vince, do you want to say anything else about the program? No, I think, I think we're still in the formative stages. We're looking for people with uh, different talents, people who uh, have artistic talents, people who can help us round uh, uh, up sponsors, because the um, Mary Ann's in charge of the actual program. The, the EAS meeting is two, two parts. So there's a uh, short course, a learning part, which is Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Then there's the actual conference, which is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so they overlap on Wednesday. Uh, the master beekeepers usually take care of the uh, short course, Mary Ann and the uh, colleagues take care of the uh, conference, but there's a lot of work that has to be done in between. There's promotion, registration, getting sponsors. Uh, we just talked to the food service at uh, Westchester University. They're going to uh, probably allow us to bring in home-baked goods, so I'd like local clubs to uh, uh, take a, a coffee break and, and supply us with um, delicious uh, home-baked uh, uh, honey containing uh, products and, and what I, my vision is that we will have uh, a sign saying Bucks County supplies this coffee break you know, Monday morning or whatever day it happens to be. So my goal the next uh, month or two is to go to each club in the area and try to round up support so um, I'll be in contact with your, with your president and if you have any ideas or any talents or any suggestions on, on organizations that could work with us, um, uh, please let us know so that we can uh, contact them and try to build this program. Uh, it's going to be the last, uh, the first full week of August uh, 2013, so I think it's something like the week of the 4th or uh, August 4th, something like that. It's, uh, you know, kind of a point of pride states have serious competitions over yeah. who has the best PAS. Yes. And so we are we're up against it because Vermont is this year, next is coming here and they have a terrific program plan. But we think we can talk there for We're looking for everybody, anyone who has any talent or interest or you know capabilities to come and join us and, and help us uh, prepare for and pull off a 
seal. Thanks again very much. Marianne, thank you uh, for being here and uh, educating us, challenging us, talking uh, a lot of great talk. Uh, the work that you've done with your team continue to do is really critical to food supply and agriculture. It's very simple to our lives. So thank you. Uh, picking up on a point Marianne shared about cooperative extension in Penn State. Um, you know, I'm a product of that. Many here are appreciate the extension service. <coughs> you know, it's it's being challenged, and, and I say this all the time. You know, sometimes you've got to use your voice uh, because you look at what's being done of the work of extending this research extension uh, from the university out to the larger community. Uh, some folks know that. Uh, some appreciate that, but many times we find folks don't completely understand that base work and how it sort of gets out to people, right? right and it gets out like tonight, and really critical. So the work has been done. And my former life as a Secretary of Agriculture in Pennsylvania, uh, always looked at the work of the university as a uh, collaborative effort with our work in the Department of Agriculture. Simply couldn't do it without Penn State Cooperative Extension Network, the great educators. Uh, and that, quite frankly, folks, is challenge at this moment with some very skilled people who work their lives uh, to educate, to extend that research, basic research, and help to those of us as consumers. So please, as you think about uh, what this government does, what is expected to do, we will hear a lot about that over the course of the next 12 and 14 months, right? So listen to the debates. I would just ask you, please remember that many of those things that uh, we take for granted, the folks uh, behind the good work of the science and how that translates to those of us as consumers and producers, that is done in our land-grant systems. So think about it. We need access to people who really built these collaborative teams, the chemists, people, great work to understand the synergies of what food work to them. That happens with folks like Marianne That happens in our land grant systems. So please keep that in mind as we think about what we value, what we want uh, out of our governments. We can't do it without investing. So Marianne, thank you for being here. We know we pulled you away to, to come to Bucks County. We appreciate that very much. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Bucks County Beekeepers Association. Thank you for being here. I want to say thank you to Ben uh, Saloyo. Chris Tippett is not here. Vince is here. You've heard from him. Uh, he's the steward of our hives and the work of the college and really revitalizing our apiary program. And Vince, thank you. Uh, to the students who are here tonight, thank you for being here as well. So with that, uh, We've got uh, an agreement to, to put some information out, some websites, and we'll work back through the association to do that. But it's great to have you on campus. Thanks for being here.